The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Wonderful to have you with us on this less bad than expected budget day. I see Duncan Peterson, Director General in the National Treasury, is standing by. We'll chat to Duncan in just a moment. We'll also catch up with Edward Kisvetter, the SARS Commissioner, and uh, then we'll have... uh, uh, top analysis this evening from Busima Vuso from a whole host of other commentators tonight as to what they make of budget 2024. If you've got any high-level feelings on budget 2024, the relief, um, the excitement, the joy, I don't know if there is any of that stuff left in the budget. Certainly it's one of the shortest budgets ever uh, presented in Parliament, the fourth shortest in the last 15 years. Tito Boweni's got the honour of delivering the shortest budget speech and in the last 15 years. He did that in 2021. He recently revealed that that was the darkest time of his life. He really detested the process of setting a budget in a difficult economy where he was struggling to get political buy-in from uh, governments at the time. We also had to... uh so had uh, the budget that came through from Inogorogwana last year. Today's was 25 words longer, uh, just under 4,000 words long. But the most verbose finance minister of the last 15 years, Pravin Gordon, circa 2013, I think it was, where he droned on for nearly 10,000 words. 10,000 words in a budget. Maybe those were the days when government was still making big promises. Welcome to The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Key factors out of today's budget. Government is going to spend 150 billion rand from the Gold and Foreign Exchange Contingency Reserve to meet its debt requirements. It'll happen in three tranches over the next three years. Um, it will save 30 billion rand a year in interest payments. Uh, so that is a little bit of good news on that particular front. Uh, a lot of money, 57 billion for nurses, doctors and teachers. Uh, and then, of course, we have got a, a whole bunch more in terms of social services, including education, health and social grants. Social grants uh, will cost the uh, the fiscus 300, cost you actually, 387.3 billion rand this next year. Uh, I think a lot of relief today that there was no big announcement on NHI. But let's hear from the person who uh, was in charge of drafting today's budget. That's Duncan Peterson, Director General at the National Treasury. A couple of points of clarity, if we can, from you, Duncan. Peter, sir, please explain the decision to dip into the foreign exchange and gold reserves at the Reserve Bank. A lot of people will find that a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, it's like breaking open the piggy bank to uh, to pay for the holiday. Explain what the thinking is behind that, please. Uh, good evening, Bruce, and to your listeners. Look, we are certainly not dipping into the reserves. Uh, one of the key um, principles of the Jafeka reform that we are introducing today is that there should be no sales of foreign exchange reserves to realize any of the Jafeka drawdown. So what we are effectively doing is we are taking advantage of the fact that uh, because of the steady depreciation in the currency over many years relative to other reserve currencies, the Jafekra account, which houses the valuation gains and losses, 
has grown to a point where it now sits above uh, $500 billion. And in order to bring uh, South Africa and our practices um, closer to peer norms and to the way that other uh, treasuries and central banks manage these kinds of accounts, we have introduced a new settlement methodology. And in terms of the settlement me- uh, methodology, we are going to be able to uh, use 150 billion of the just over 500 billion that sits in this account over the next three years in order to finance the gross borrowing requirement, which is a cheaper form of financing than going directly into the market. And we are also using another 100 billion uh, of the just over 500 billion in order to um, ensure that the solvency of the Reserve Bank is not compromised by putting 100 billion into a contingency reserve at the Reserve Bank. Um, and look, it's, it's highly technical and complicated. The, the question here is whether or not you're going into the national piggy bank and taking money out. You suggest that there are structures and mechanisms and ways in which you can do this with, uh, with minimal impact, in fact, on those reserves. But is it based on a bet that the RAND continues to depreciate at a fairly alarming rate in order to make up those contingency reserves again over a period of time? The way in which we've designed uh, this reform, uh, Bruce, is that there are effectively three buckets. And and the first bucket uh, that we are proposing, which is a a Jafekra buffer, ensures that there are sufficient funds available of the 506 billion to absorb any exchange rate swings. If we don't do that, then the Treasury would have to do what it did uh, many years ago is to reimburse the Reserve Bank for those. So we are confident that the buffer that we've created using these Chafekra valuation gains are such that if there are any uh, currency appreciation or if there are any volatile swings in the currency, that there is sufficient funding available in that buffer uh, to not compromise uh, the central bank solvency or not lead to a situation where we have to pay Uh, the Reserve Bank for those losses. And the 15% tax on foreign companies doing business in South Africa, that's going to raise a further 8 billion rand. Uh, This is also another mechanism you say is bringing us in line with international best practice. Explain that one if you would. Yeah, so this is really a uh, reform that was spearheaded by the OECD G20 inclusive framework on base erosion and profit shifting. And the rules here are really uh, designed to limit the various ways in which multinationals use to shift profit from high to low tax jurisdictions. And effectively what we are doing as part of this global minimum tax is we are saying that any multinational with annual revenue that exceeds 750 million euros will be subject to an effective tax rate of at least 15%, regardless of where their profits are located. And, and, if, and, and the way we achieve this mainly is that to the extent that those companies have an effective tax rate that is lower than 15%, we are introducing a uh, minimum top-up tax to bring them up to the level of 15%. And we are not the only country doing this. This is part of a, a global reform at ensuring that profit shifting by multinationals is managed in a, in a globally cooperative manner.
Duncan Peterson, the Director General at National Treasury. Thanks for your time this evening. To Edward Kiesvetter we go. Edward Kiesvetter is the Commissioner at the South African Revenue Service. Commissioner, did you make your budgets this year? It seemed like you were um, scraping many, many barrels and finding some of them empty. Well, none of the barrels are empty, Chris, but yes, we are looking at all areas where obviously we find that compliance revenue may be short. Uh, and and I have to say that we have been very successful. The, the, the issue is always that under difficult economic conditions uh, and companies and individuals having to reprioritize, often um, tax compliance is the, um, uh, the, the soft target. And so during these times, our compliance efforts have to step up significantly more just to ensure that we maximize the, um, the tax revenue for the minister and therefore minimize his impact on borrowing. The real economy, though, is struggling um, at best, and we always know National Treasury tends to underestimate the budget blowouts that happens and underestimates demands on the fiscus and always overestimates the growth rate. Uh, last year's growth rate came in at 0.6 instead of 0.8%, and the best estimate the Treasury around 1.6%, which is nowhere near enough for this economy to absorb the deep needs um, that it has. How much flexibility do you think there is in the collection system to keep growing collections at the rate that South Africa has enjoyed in recent years, or at least SARS has enjoyed in recent years? So I think it's an important point that uh, while our economy is struggling, our tax base is definitely not growing, and therefore the focus on compliance efforts is even more important. To your specific question, Bruce, the the low-hanging fruit for us, and it's low-hanging fruit is kind of a poetic license because it's hard to to harvest it. The first is we have a growing debt book of almost 300 billion rand. This is revenue that is not disputed by taxpayers. They just don't pay it. Just this year, for example, we've had to resolve over 2 million such cases, and that has yielded over 70 billion that would not have been in the fiscal had not been for this piece of work. Um, so our, our growing debt book is an opportunity for us if we become more effective at, at managing that. The second opportunity is the prolific... No, so, sorry, Edward Kies, but I must, I must just pause there for a moment. 300 billion rand that is owed to you that is simply not being paid? I mean, is this uh, money that corporates are objecting to in terms of their tax assessments or individuals are objecting to, or is this just a people are hiding under the bed when the tax man comes knocking? No, this is not debt that is disputed or objected to. That's another bucket. So what I'm saying is just taxes that taxpayers, individuals and companies are not paying because they are either delinquent payers or they just don't have the money amounts to 300 billion. And unless SARS focuses on those efforts on collecting it, that money would not come. Um, And that could be anything from writing your final demand letter, making follow-up phone calls, to issuing civil judgments and taking it to court. All of that work, as I said, has yielded 70 billion, but there's still so much more that we need to collect. Another area I was going to focus on is the attack on our refund system. The refund system 
you, t- you mentioned earlier to Duncan about raiding the piggy bank. Um, well, there's another piggy bank that taxpayers, and especially uh, criminal and fraudulent taxpayers, yeah. raid, and that's the refund uh, uh, piggy bank. So we have had to improve our detection capability when taxpayers claim an impermissible refund by either not disclosing income or overstating expenses, but also creating fake companies purely to deduct the input taxes without any intention to trade. We would not be able to do that unless we employed uh, data science and artificial intelligence. And this year, through this work, we were able to detect do you have adequate support from the justice system in terms of prosecutions, in terms of really hunting down and prosecuting delinquent taxpayers? Occasionally there's a statement from SARS to say uh, that you've sort of nailed somebody's skin to the door who hasn't been paying their taxes or filling in their tax returns, but one doesn't get many statements like that. And I wonder whether or not you have adequate support from uh, from the, the powers that be to help you with enforcement? Bruce, the entire justice system is still undercapacitated and not as effective as we need. So, yes, to someone like myself, I, I often wish that we could follow through the civil compliance that we enforce, followed by the criminal cases that we build. And we've, we've worked with the justice system to hand them what we called prosecutor-ready files. And in those cases, we have found a high level of conviction. But the big complex cases just do not get as efficiently addressed as we need to. Edward Kiesvetter, thank you. Edward Kiesvetter, the Commissioner at the South African Revenue Service. Listening to all of that, the very patient Gina Skuman, economist at Citibank in South Africa. What are the, the big issues for you in Budget 2024, Gina? Good evening. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Um, It's been a long day, (laughs) as it always is. I think the big issue here is what stole the thunder is JFICRA, so another big acronym for all of us to get to know very well. As economists and financial market participants have been talking about it for quite some time, and that's effectively the $150 billion drawdown of the gold foreign exchange reserves that they're going to use to reduce debt. Now, that obviously is the overriding story. The financial markets were very happy to see that. We saw bond yields come down. We saw the currency strengthen. However, and I have to say that <laughs> as an economist, if you look past Jafekra into the actual budget, not very much has changed. And and I don't mean to be unfair to Treasury. I do think National Treasury does whatever they possibly can to collect as much revenue as possible and to try and contain expenditure. But what is, of course, a concern is that the structural budget is not necessarily guaranteed to pan out the way that Treasury has it down on paper. And that's, of course, a concern down the line. However, if you don't take action and you don't act and you don't use the mechanisms at your disposal, you then run the risk, of course, of a budget blowout because the government's debt burden is at its worst level. I think I saw a figure since 1947 or something, which is catastrophic and has been something that's been causing real palpitations for investors for an awfully long time. 
Yes, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm by no means saying that they should not have used Josecra and these reserves. I think it was the correct decision because it had got to a point where right. 500 billion profit is just, it's just too much, it's too big. So they had to find a way around it and the coin phrase is how to right size it. Anyway, regardless of the numbers, I think what's important here is that number one, this money, these unrealized profits that will now be realized will be used only to reduce the borrowing. And that does open up relief within the budget, which hopefully will allow Treasury to continue containing expenditure and, of course, continue um, pushing for revenue efforts. I mean, after all, if this is going to reduce the interest payments on our government debt, just think how much we could use that room if these interest payments are currently swallowing up 20% of all revenue collected in South Africa. So that is quite a lot of space that hopefully Treasury will keep control of. And I say that with emphasis because I do think Treasury is sensible in trying to balance this all out. But we will obviously have to see how this works in upcoming budgets. Thank you very much to Gina Skuman, the economist at Citibank, for us this evening. The Money Show. The Markets. To Chris Stewart we go. And let's skip the budget stuff, Chris Stewart. I don't think there are any nasty shocks there for investors. Certainly, um, the SPA trading update was warmly welcomed today. We also had a trading update uh, come out of other companies, including Sibanya uh, Stillwater. Perhaps Bidcorp is the most optimistic of the lot. The global food services business, once part of Bidvest, it grew by about 19%. That's a solid number. Yeah, let's run through those three in two or three minutes that we've got, Bruce. Um, Bitcorp was a, a solid number, albeit a slowdown on the sort of trading update that they gave, I think, in November of last year, uh, and evidence of some uh, margin pressure emerging in their important UK operations. So, you know, the top line growth was pretty good. The earnings growth was, you know, good in, in current market conditions, uh, but perhaps not quite as good as the market was hoping for. And they've got some work still to do in the second half in order to meet uh, consensus expectations, but generally uh, going quite well. Then if we move on to SPA, I think SPA a little disappointing, but you've got to take it from from where the share has come. So it's, you know, it was down nearly 10% uh, year to date at the beginning of trade today. So, you know, it has... Uh, risen nearly a percent on the back of what was a poor number, but possibly a poor and uh, expected number. The South African supermarkets business was slow, uh, growing below inflation in the groceries area. The liquor business, uh, quite a lot better than that. Uh, The farmer business going quite well as well. Uh, The uh, build-it business uh, doing okay, but a tough environment for that. Both the Polish and Swiss operations, I think, quite poor, bailed out to a degree by currency translation effects back into RAND and probably some disappointment from uh, investors that no news uh, or additional news on the disposal of the Polish business. Uh, The Irish business going great guns and still having some problems in South Africa with the implementation of SAP. Uh, That's having uh, quite a lot of operational problems uh, and and causing them quite a lot of difficulty still. Uh, Then if we go from perhaps the not so sublime to the almost ridiculous. Uh, we saw Sabanya's headline earnings per share uh, down about 90% uh, year on year to about 65 cents. That implies that the second half of their financial year uh, probably losing uh, somewhere around 
uh, one rand forty a share. So loss making primarily as a result of fairly sharp uh, declines in the PGM commodity price basket. Uh, that's hit them hard. But what was even more significant, I think, uh, was the massive basic loss per share guided to as a result of asset impairments. And I'm going to say this slowly, Bruce, asset impairments of 47.5 billion rand. And that's in the context of a company with a 57 billion rand uh, market capitalization. Oh I guess the fact that wow. it was only down four or five percent today meant that the market was expecting uh, impairments of assets, but perhaps not of this order of magnitude. And then just a quick comment on inflation. Um, of course, it is uh, a number we watch very closely up in January from 5.1 to 5.3%. And it uh, is, I suppose, justifies the Reserve Bank's hawkishness around cutting rates. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the headline number was, was obviously impacted by the base effect of a you know fuel price changes uh, this month versus the uh, prior year comparative month. Uh, that was unhelpful. Uh, the fact that core inflation ticked up by uh, 10 basis points as well, uh, probably slightly unhelpful. And, uh, you know, as long as the rest of the world continues to uh, kick kick out their, uh, infl- uh, their interest rate decreases, uh, I think we're going to be doing the same on the back of news like this, probably only to see rate cuts in South Africa in the second half of this year, Bruce. Chris Stewart, thank you very much indeed. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91. Bringing us to just gone half past six. And Bari Dlamini now with the latest in Eyewitness News. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB. Driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. We'll chat to Charles DeVette in just a moment. Charles is a tax executive at ENS Africa. Uh, we'll do, most certainly chat to him about some of the key features of today's uh, 2024 budget speech. On your next Money Show, Simon Fillimore, the Chief Investment Officer at Independent Securities, looking at the potential renaissance of China and what it means for South African investors who've got exposure through pension funds and shares. Then Pablo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator, looking at small business. Plus, of course, mopping up the budget 2024 and picking up on all the big money stories of the day. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. To Charles DeVette we go. Charles is a tax executive at ENS Africa. What were your headline thoughts, Charles DeVette, on the budget? No fiscal drag adjustment, Bruce. Has this ever happened? I don't remember it it, it, it happened. It used to be Minister Trevor Manuel's favourite thing. Explain that. Well, so... Uh, I mean, there was no uh, adjustment for inflation this year. So the full 15 billion rand uh, that the minister said he was looking for in uh, in the medium-term uh, policy statement in, in November, it took from individuals uh, this year by not making any adjustment uh, to the tax brackets uh, that would have increased quite substantially this year simply because we had a high inflation year. So... You know, what, what, what we've seen uh, is the, the tax burden again ending up with the, with the individual and it's, it, it's always been higher and now it's higher than before. 
So don't celebrate the fact that there are no tax increases because there's no fuel price, uh, fuel levy increase. There aren't increases, for example, in VAT. And there's no increase in income tax. But there is an increase in income tax because you're not getting the relief of what they call bracket creep. Effectively, if you don't get a salary increase this time, uh, this year, you'll be 5 or 6% poorer by this time next year. That, that's exactly what it means. So people could always look forward to, in their March pay packet, sort of a, a little bit more because the tax decreased uh, a, a little bit as a result of that. And this year, nobody's going to see that at all because there was no adjustment as far as, as, far as that's uh, concerned. And, you know, I think that, that, that's a big announcement uh, that was, was sort of slipped into the, uh, to the budget. I mean, we really have come to, to expect that uh, over a number of years, especially when you're in a high inflationary environment, it is important to you know adjust the uh, the tax brackets, the tax tables, so that people don't automatically end up paying tax uh, just because of uh, of inflation. And this year, that hasn't happened, and I think that 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 will be very significant for the man in the street. Most certainly. Any other big issues that you picked up from a tax perspective? Certainly my biggest concern um, was just a lack of growth being uh, being forecast in the budget. Um, they're, they're just too many pressures and government is kind of acknowledging that we are stuck in a very deep rut. I think that's right, uh, Bruce. I mean, you know, the, the only way... Uh, you know, that we can grow the tax basis by growing the, the economy. And, you know, the, the concerning thing is the fact that, you know, he, he announced a much lower uh, growth rate. And, you know, if you sort of go back, uh, what he said a year ago and what has been predicted over, over time, you know, it, it's really small in comparison uh, I, 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 to, uh, to that. And, I, you know, there also no plans were, were in, uh, uh, announced uh, that would help to increase that or any programs put in place. I mean, you know, we, we, we saw 150 billion and, you know, 250 billion in total coming out of the, uh, the Golden Foreign Exchange Reserve, but that it, it, it's not going to be used uh, to, to fund any growth initiatives. It's simply going to be to, to, uh, to settle debt. And I, you know, I, I, I think it was crucial. I think that you know, they, they, I mean, one uh, there were there were predictions before the time that that would happen. But to take 50 percent of that that amount with the ports that are that are not working and our foreign exchange, you know, we we, we everything is very close to the edge at the moment. It does feel that. It feels very fragile. It feels very vulnerable. But it also feels just a little less fragile and a little less vulnerable than it did yesterday. I think, you know, in terms of having. Uh, they say you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, National Treasury with, you know, boxing with one hand tied behind its back. I'm going to mix my metaphors at my pleasure. Um, I I think they've done a fairly decent job with the very limited resources at their disposal. I I think that's right. Uh, You know, and I think that what one does want to see in the budget uh, is that it's stable, that it's consistent, that the policy direction stays uh, it stays correct, and you know, I mean, over time, I mean, I, I, I think that we we have achieved that. I mean, there were, the, the, obviously, Treasury is in a very difficult uh, position to try and uh, you know balance the budget. I mean, from, from a business perspective, uh, and I think everybody knew this was coming—the introduction of a you know sort of global minimum tax of 
of 15% that is, you know, applicable to, to outbound uh, businesses and not inbound businesses. So it's not the Googles and Apples of the, of the world, but the, but the Anglos, um, and the, and, 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 uh, the MTNs and, and, and Vodacoms that may end up paying more tax in the circumstances. You know, so, so there are some areas I like that where they will uh, collect a, I mean, a, a little bit of, of, of more tax. But, but the bottom line is until we get uh, economic growth, we're going to, uh, you know, tax individuals at, at, at a high rate that, we, that we've seen now. We go, you know, potentially at some point in time, the, the VAT rate that has a direct impact on, uh, I, I, on individuals. So it, it was stable from, uh, from, from that perspective. But without growth, it's going to become more difficult each and every year. Thank you, Charles DeVette, who is the tax executive at ENS Africa. We'll get a political view on this. We'll get a business view on budget 2024, and then we will park our budget coverage um, to focus on other issues this evening as well. But uh, in the next couple of minutes, let's get more reaction to budget 2024. Less awful than feared. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Let's go to political analyst, independent political analyst Nick Borain this evening. I mean, the the budget is about politics almost more than it is about money. What are the political signals that you're getting out of budget 2024, Nick Borain? Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. And I suppose that most obvious and important point is, as we expected anyway, as I expected, uh, the budget didn't make compromises with the ANC's imperative to get within shooting distance of the 50% and be able to form the the next government with a partner that uh, uh, they're comfortable with. Um, so it didn't uh, it didn't make the obvious popular spending moves. Um, and if any uh, look, obviously that was made possible by um, the Jeff Vectra. Um, and that wasn't obvious uh, to, I suppose, the general consumer of the budget. Uh, but it also, importantly, in my view, laid the grounds for uh, Operation Volendlela doubling down uh, through concessioning of rails, through cutting and imposing conditions of, 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 uh, uh, on Transnet and ESCOM, um, as Operation Volendlela has insisted upon. Operation Volendlela is the kind of reduction of public sector investment spending and making way and deregulating and allowing um, um, private investment into all those network industries, logistics, power, etc. And that would be, in, in, in my understanding, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's priority if, uh, when, if or when he gets a second term and able to focus on that without uh, the, the kind of distractions and attacks from either the left or Kasatu or, or, or the MK kind of party and those elements within the ANC. I mean, we can speculate, of course, about percentages and who's going to be doing what and who's going to do what to whom and everything else about it, but I'll leave that to other shows to do. Uh, The the biggest problem, of course, the ANC has got here is that uh, the cupboard is bare and there are no more rabbits and no more hats. Today possibly was the last rabbit out of the last remaining hat, which was borrowing from from the National Reserves. Uh, you, you nail it. I, mean, I, I did see, see your tweet, and I thought it was a brilliant summary. So quick, um, and yeah, that is that is uh, 
the risk that they have taken, and there are going to be um, um, funds in the world who, who own our, uh, our government debt and other, other, other czar-based assets who are not going to be happy with uh, that as the solution, will probably not be happy uh, that it was announced without a very clear view of how sterilization would happen and whether it would be a permanent uh, uh, pot to dip into, the kinds of things that they have been worried about when I've spoken to them over the last several months. Uh, so, yeah, there's no more hats. It's, we make it here or we don't make it anywhere. Thank you, Nick Borain, very much indeed. Independent political analyst Nick Borain tonight on The Money Show. Now to the Chief Executive of Business Leadership South Africa, the often outspoken Busi Mavuso. Um, it was interesting to my mind, Busi, to see 1.4 billion rand of additional money being made available for NHI. This isn't the big sort of um, budget spending thing that perhaps many in government would have hoped to see. Right? I mean, really, how irresponsible can you be, Bruce, when you know very well that we're in this tough economic climate? Now, you allocate $1.4 billion to the National Insurance Plan, which uh, you are supposedly, you know, going to utilize it to prepare the structures for its establishment. But we know very well that the Minister of Health said that they need 200 billion rands, not one point four. 200 billion rands to be able to make the current system eligible to receive the NHI. Now, 1.4 billion rands is not even a 1%, you know, of it. So this is really money that could have been and should have been spent elsewhere because the spending uh, on this, you know, as the minister knows very well, you know, will never be implemented. You're spending on something that is never going to be implemented. It's not a smart move. It's not a smart move. And I think it really could have been spent somewhere else. Now, this bill is unworkable. The president is insisting that they are going to sign this thing into law. It's a stupid move. We have said that over and over again. There is no capacity to actually uh, implement this thing. There is no funding to implement, uh, to actually put into this thing. And it's going to be embroiled in litigation on several front including its constitutionality now you are going to be putting money into something that you know very well will never material and bruce never is a long time but i'm saying will never be implemented so what is the point you know is it signaling you know is it electioneering is it what exactly is it because then this is money that could have been uh, i mean take this 1.4 billion paint the hospital walls you know buy more beds buy equipment for the hospitals do something as you know put it in the debt servicing cost you know the debt service cost now are actually going to amount to more than 20 percent of our revenues Put it somewhere where it would matter. Because you're throwing, number one, this thing is not going to even create a dent, you know, in this hospital system. Because then you put in place structures for a system that will never come into place and for a system that you're not going to use, you know, for a while. And you'll never use because it will never come into place. Now, what exactly is the point? Mm. I really thought that was really um, dumb. Let's move beyond Let's move beyond NHI. Broadly speaking, any, any big concerns in the budget? Um, the fiscal side is definitely a concern. You know, uh, we are in trouble through 75% debt to GDP. We haven't been here since 1947, according to some of the reports. The budget deficit has worsened to 4.9. You know, uh, it shows how corporates are really 
sitting under a lot of pressure at the moment with the tax revenue collection having declined. It shows, you know, the reality of the pressures of ESCOM and Transnet and the broader network industries that are not functioning as they should. The growth of 0.6% when the population is growing at 1.6% should be a cause for concern for all of us. And we just had to go and deep into the gold and foreign exchange contingency reserve account. This is not money to be bailing a country out. We are now on a serious slippery slope as a country. I know our backs are against the wall. We don't have a lot of options. But, you know, once you open this, you know, how long is this piece of screen? You know, how are we going to continue to kick this can down the road? You know, even when we say we are going to put strict and credible conditions to make it clear that the function of these reserves is to protect the country from international crisis. And maintain its credibility in the international financial system. But are we going to be able to do that? I worry about that. So we're going to be throwing down the 150 billion rands, and I hope we understand that is not a free money pot for government bailouts. And that point is very, very important. Busi Mavusa, thank you, the Chief Executive at Business Leadership, South Africa. This awkward silence was brought to you by Pineapple. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when action with collaboration through the Insight Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show. Wonderful to have you with us on this uh, Wednesday evening budget 2024 day, the last budget of the sixth administration of the ANC, or the the sixth administration of South Africa, really. It has been uh, six ANC administrations, and... Frankly, the country's finances are in a mess. Debt uh, is peaking at 75.3%, um, which is slightly better than the previous estimates because government is going to be dipping into foreign currency reserves, 150 billion rand over the next three years. Now, interesting uh, comment from Len Konar, who has had a long corporate career, has served on many boards during his time, including the Reserve Bank. And he says, as a long-standing former Reserve Bank director and chair of its audit committee, the explanations of the National Treasury DG, Duncan Peterson, are spot on. And I love this new acronym, the GFECRA account, the Gold Foreign Exchange Credit Reserve account, I think it's called, is adjusted annually. And with 150 billion rand withdrawn over three years, it still leaves a huge buffer which will not affect the rand. This is not a worry. But to pay more than 1 billion rand a day to finance the deficit is unacceptable. In addition, handouts to ESCOM and Transit are so unnecessary, competent management appointed on mediocrity will make a or meritocracy, I beg your pardon. That's my faux pas, not his. Uh, in addition, handouts to ESCOM and Transit are so unnecessary. Competent management appointed on meritocracy will make a sizable difference, uh, Len Kona in Hyde Park. Uh, yeah, I think he's absolutely spot on on that one. It is an uncomfortable um, realisation, though, and I'm not too sure that we fully understand the full implications of this ability of uh, government to go into those reserves and to utilise those reserves to pay down debt. What it does
does do is uh, reduce the uh, interest payments over the next three years by 30 billion rand a year. That's 90 billion rand over that period of time. We have got two, and the borrowings are just too big. It started under Pravin Gordon um, in, in anticipation that growth was simply going to happen, but growth could not have happened in the catastrophic environment that was created by the Zuma administration over two terms or two, you know, one, point three, one and three quarter, 11th terms um, that the, the devastation was wrought. So, yeah, very, very, very serious. Our debt servicing costs remain close to 20% of our revenues. We spend as much on paying interest on our loans as we do in total grants, health and policing. In total, we spend more on repaying our debt. And that's money that could have gone somewhere else, but it's been borrowed. The consequence is there. And, uh, yeah, also don't be fooled by the fact that there are no tax increases. Yes, there are no tax increases by the name of tax increases, but uh, you are going to be worse off if you don't get a big, fat wage increase this year. And if you do get a big, fat wage increase this year, be careful that it doesn't push you into another tax bracket because then you get nailed on that particular front as well. This is The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield. Arthur Goldstuck is standing by. Arthur is the Managing Director at Worldwide Works. He's the founder there. Uh, we'll also chat to Wendy Nola uh, with our Consumer Ninja feature. And then a big treat for you at half past seven. Tonight's shapeshifter is somebody who moves in truly mysterious ways in the world of startups and founding businesses and small businesses. All of that tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show. Business Unusual. Arthur Goldstock, the founder of Worldwide Works, is with us this evening. Let's talk artificial intelligence. Let's talk about Google. Let's talk about how Satya Nadella has positioned himself absolutely perfectly as a beneficiary of Sam Altman's uh, ChatGPT empire. Give me a, a feel of this, please, Arthur Goldstock, who's written the book, by the way, on AI. You can find few few guides better on the impenetrable world of artificial intelligence at the moment than Arthur's, but yes, give me a, give me a feel of Google and the world of AI, Arthur. Thank you, Bruce. Good evening to you and your listeners. Of course, it's been an amazing ride for me for the last decade or so. But in the last twelve months, it's been an amazing ride for anybody who's uses almost any tool on their smartphone or in their business that is now being put on steroids in effect. You cannot use a business tool, uh, Bruce, without being told in the last few months that they're now adding AI capabilities uh, to it. So uh, that tells us that businesses cannot avoid AI. Consumers can't avoid AI because it's on your smartphone. It's in your mapping app. But uh, what's astonishing is how almost every single day there's a new uh, function or a new feature and a new game changer, as they like to call them, uh, in this uh, environment. And uh, just in the last few days, we saw Google upping its own game with putting AI into search ads, which, of course, is uh, their big money spinner. That's their core uh, business. So when they uh, up that particular game, it is a game changer, mainly for Google, uh, of course. But almost in the same breath, you had uh, OpenAI, Sam Altman's uh, company, um, announcing something called Sora, a video creation tool, the same way that you can type mm. into uh, ChatGPT, uh, write a book about what 
but cats worry about, which is sometimes it, by the way, you can get it for free on <laughs> Amazon Kindle. Um, in the same way, you can say uh, to Sora, um, creative videos showing um, Bruce Whitfield walking on the moon. And it might say, no, it won't, because Bruce Whitfield protects his identity very carefully. But you can certainly get it to do similar things. Yeah. So my cat walking on the moon, for example. And uh, when they unveiled Sora last week, they showed a range of different kinds of implementations, including uh, what California would have looked like during the gold rush um, uh, uh, more, than a, more than a century ago. And it looks like a video that's been taken of it. So the one shortcoming of that is that it's all silent video. It's all very beautiful. But, but then just in the last couple of days, we had a, a, a company uh, announcing that it was now making it possible for you to add, add sound effects to a Sora video. So you create this, the video uh, with Sora on uh, via OpenAI's tool. And uh, then you use this company's uh, tool um, called Eleven Labs. And they will add appropriate sound effects. So Sora created, for example, a, a woman walking down a street of Tokyo. Well, um, Eleven Labs then automatically synchronizes sound effects to that woman walking down the street, for example. So you can imagine what this stuff to video production mm. and to advertising and the like. Have you ever seen a technological eruption like AI has erupted into our lives with force, vigor, and enthusiasm, like nothing I can recall, certainly, um, this year. One can compare it to when the internet first emerged, but that was a slow burn. It took a while. And I remember first getting excited about it um, at the end of 1993, and my book on it, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Internet, came out end of 95. And... It caught the wave as it was breaking, and it became a bestseller because over those two years, we had seen it explode into public consciousness. But still, for the next few years, people needed a book like that to tell them um, how to even access the Internet, never mind how to use it or what it was going to do for them. And that book at that stage was almost entirely a manual on how to use the Internet, whereas the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI now is a guide to what brought us here and where it's going to go in the future. People don't need a guide to tell them how to type into a website. And that's the, the, the true revolution that we've seen in the last year. Anyone with a computer or a smartphone can go onto an AI website or a website that uses AI tools and they can use those tools and they can use mm. them effectively. And that is uh, the kind of explosion we have never seen in, in history in terms of Exit technology. I, I was giggling the other day. I saw a video, a BBC video from 1984 or was it 1986 of a man using a modem and he was going to get something called an electronic mail. And he said, it's very simple. All you have to do is unplug the cable from your telephone and plug it <laughs> into the modem. And then you go onto your computer and it was a DOS program and you type in a certain code, and within the next five minutes, you can get messages just like a telegram, I think was the subtext of it. And yes, we've moved on a bit since then. <laughs>
It's exactly how it was back then. And in, in the book, I still gave people a guide to how to download something called Trumpet Windsock, which was an extra application you needed to enable your internet connection to allow your computer to access this thing called the World Wide Web, which back then, uh, there weren't even graphical browsers that you could click. Um, and within a few months, there were a few browsers that you could click on, but you needed all those tools that you had to download and you had to make sure that they were configured and you couldn't do it if you didn't come guiding you or you were a real serious techie. Yeah. But I, 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 I saw Sora coming out on Monday and I immediately went in and tried to get ChatGPT to generate Sora stuff for me and Toby Shapshak then explained on Monday night that no, you can't because it's still in the beta testing phase and it's all for academics and everybody else. But there must be people in the marketing industry, the advertising industry, um, the content industries who are quaking in their boots at the prospect of rapidly evolving technologies getting better and better each and every single day, possibly every, each and every single moment that are going to disrupt many of these industries in the, the creative environment. Very much so. Uh, the only thing that makes Sora different is that it's going to be freely available and easily accessible, but there are already tools like that available online that you pay to use. And uh, one example is called Pictory. P-I-C-T-O-R-Y, picture story. But essentially, you've got to write a script yourself, but you give it a script and it'll generate a video for you for a small fee. So people who are already used to paying large fees for video creation are certainly turning to this kind of uh, tool. There's something called Jasper, which is described as an AI writing assistant, which um, overcomes most of the shortcomings of ChatGPT, produces professional content, to the length that you uh, need, to the style that you need. It's got templates that you can choose from for, for the kind of content you want to put out and so on. You've got something called uh, Murph, which basically takes your script and turns it into a voiceover that you can put into podcasts or uh, into your video and so on. And you can go on and on and on with tools like these, which do incredible things. Um, one of my favorite party tricks when I give talks is to... Uh, find a, the LinkedIn profile pic of the CEO of the company I'm speaking to. I put the pic up on a screen and then I animate it. <laughs> and I've taken text from their website and I have the animated picture uh, essentially reading the text. But it's, it looks for all the world like a video of that person speaking to the audience. And of course, the individual is shocked. The audience is highly amused. But it's got very serious implications for the future of uh, content creation and for professional content creators especially that's what we're all quaking in our boots for but thank you arthur goldstock the founder at worldwide works he's also written of course a brand new book all about artificial intelligence and it's the go-to guide the money show consumer ninja Consumer Ninja Wendy Nola is with us, and I don't know what your administration is like at home, but if you ignore the admin that your bank demands of you, you are going to end up in a spot of bother. Are you not, Wendy Nola? Oh, she's not ready, apparently. Well, now we know.
Uh, yes, Wendy Nola will be with us. And then I will ask her that same question all over again uh, because I'm very patient that way. Um, yes, Wendy Nola, our consumer ninja, joins us every Wednesday night. And that, of course, is absolutely critical listening. And she solves so many problems for so many people um, because she has hotlines and a, a, a persistence and a doggedness which is rare amongst humans nowadays. And she is incredibly committed uh, to resolving big issues for people. Uh, The founder of Think Room Consulting is Catherine Young. But Catherine Young has done many, many astonishing things during a, a, a fascinating career. She's worked at Chevron and SAP and Deloitte and ShopRite. And she has uh, created a business called Grindstone, which is an accelerator co-owned with Knife Capital. She's recently joined um, Knife Capital as a partner as well. She's incredibly busy. Um, and with launching Think Room, she's also launched something called Think Ubate. Um, and it comes with lots of jargon does think you bait and think room so we're going to de-jargonize with Catherine Young this evening and explain to you what it is that she's up to certainly very active in the SME sector um, and helping businesses truly get started to Wendy Nola this evening I don't know what your administration is like Wendy Nola but I'm guessing you're human like the rest of us and occasionally when the bank demands that you do some really tedious admin like I don't know prove where you live you, like most of us, are prone to put that on a pile of things to do and probably forget about it yourself. Yes, I put my hand up, both hands up, with change of address. The bank calls it your domicilium address, and it's on your on your file, right? Your electronic file, and it's up to you to change your address. But, I mean, when I was working on this story, I thought, oh, let me check, because we don't get statements in the post anymore we, we everything's online so i checked and my address was three years out of date so i very smartly corrected that but that's what uh, is the topic of of this little chat uh, today bruce so that domicilium domicilium address is the address that your bank will send any legal notices to and if they're going to take the judgment against you they've got to send that notice to you that summons but um, that letter it is, but they they don't have to actually make sure that you got it, right? So they just send it to that address, put it to the wall or the fence or whatever it is, and all they have to prove to the judge is that they did that and whether you read it or not. And that's why there's so many default judgments. I hear from so many people. The default judgment was granted and they only found out when they apply for credit and they don't get it or the few people that actually check their credit records and suddenly, what? There's a default judgment, which can mess your life up quite considerably. So that's the backstory. The case study is really interesting. Uh, this whole issue about domicilium, physical address, uh, was, is at the, the heart of this issue. So Liesl Dutoy of Joburg, she became over-indebted. She went under debt review with a huge uh, debt review company called Debt Busters in 2022. And part of the uh, uh, her loans that uh, went under debt review was an APSA car loan. She bought a, a Renault Sandero in the middle of 2019, and this became part of a refinancing agreement. But due to a couple of missed and later caught up payments, it's a very long story I won't go into, APSA took legal action to repossess that car. And in February of last year, 
the Joburg High Court granted default judgment because Liesl didn't know about it. Um, and she had to then hand over her car to the big burly bloke who came to collect it from her at a different address, <laughs> which they found that from the one that was on her ABSA contract, right? Um, so fast forward to a few weeks ago, she took ABSA to court to get her car back, to get that judgment um, rescinded, and she succeeded because she argued that the judgment should uh, that that the um, b- bank service of that summons was irregular because they'd use an old address and they just stuck it on the on the main entrance to that old address. She says also she's been a model debt counselling candidate. Everything is up to date, and so she's entitled to get her car back. Um, she said um, yes, that might have been an outdated address which was still on her official file, but eleven months. Before the bank served summons on her, her debt counsellor, that's debt, com- debt busters, um, had sent a national credit regulator form. It's a standard thing to the creditors to say this woman is now under debt review. Um, they sent that to ABSA and it was a different address from the one that they had on file for her mm. and the one they served summons to. And after judgment was obtained, the bank managed to find her and her car at a different address. They didn't go looking for her at the outdated domiciliary address. And she right. said if they'd sent it to the right address, she would have appeared and maybe her, the judgment wouldn't have been granted against her and she would have kept her car. Right. So the judge, in a long story short, as the minutes tick away, the judge disagreed with ABSA that that um, debt counselling notice of January 2022 that they that was sent to them, that that wasn't an official uh, change of an address. And the judge said, yes, it was. It's actually an important document. There are consequences for debtor and creditor. So... In my view, the judge said, had the person who granted the default judgment been aware of the change of address, they wouldn't have granted it. And so, a couple of weeks ago, APSA had, to their credit, um, undertaken to store her Sandera safely, pending the outcome of the case. And so, a couple of weeks ago, a year later after it was taken from her, Liesl got her Sandera back, which is all very satisfying. But I thought, how important is this judgment then? So, I went to banking, Ombuds and Brianna Stain, and she said... Um, the banks do rely on, uh, rely on the so-called domiciliary address, um, even when they. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to simplify this. She says. Um, no, exactly. It's very it's very it complicated, yeah, Wendy. I mean, in in a minute, just give me the the sense of it. If you fail to okay. update your domiciliary, which is the Latin word for where you live, um, what is, what could where be you the live. consequence? She, okay, she says the domiciliary is different from where you're currently living. That's your on-the-record address. In Liesl's favour, the, the ABSA contract just said physical address. So she said, yes, on that interpretation, um, they should have taken that form to be an updated address. But she said, and this is the warning, generally in South Africa, um, a debt review application will not in itself be sufficient to formally change your chosen domicilium address. So my advice to people is... You know, you don't want to miss that notice. A lot of people might think, well, I don't care what address they've got for me. I don't want them to find me. But this case shows, you know, what happens if it goes to the wrong address. You don't know about a, a court case. You don't appear. You don't defend yourself. And now you're on the back foot. And it can lead to nasty things. So if, like me, your your actual where you actually live is not the address on file that your credit providers have, particularly your bank, then make a call, do the necessary, and have it changed. The Money Show. Shapeshifters.
Our shapeshifter this evening is Catherine Young. What does Catherine Young do? Well, Catherine Young is the founder of Think Room Consulting. And then I delved deeper into her CV and I wondered to myself, my goodness me, this is the busiest person since Enoch Gorongwana during the budget speech. Um, She has worked in consulting for a long time. She has created businesses. She has helped businesses grow. She is a shareholder in Grindstone. It's part of Knife Capital, which she's joined as a partner. Previously, she's worked at places like SAP, at ShopRite and Deloitte. Um, She's also founded the SME development company Think Room. She did that a decade ago, and from that there have been a whole bunch of offshoots as well. Uh, Catherine Young, please help me summarize. What is the world of Catherine Young? It sounds busy, it sounds like a whole bunch of fun, but how do you describe yourself to a room of, I don't know, 12-year-olds? Bruce, I'm just tired of listening to that. <laughs> it's um, I'm Catherine Young. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's um, it really is. I think um, I'm in perpetual movement all the time. It energizes me, and truly, what drives me is really, truthfully, from the bottom of my heart, that this thing about entrepreneurship. I, 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 I stumbled across it probably 15 or so years ago. I was still in corporate. And I thought, you know, we're onto something here. This could really change the future at that stage. I thought of our beautiful country, South Africa, and and now it's just Africa, and it feels like even the world. I mean, we can change, as um, you know, if you help these entrepreneurs. So, so that is who I am, and it does make me tired. But but I'm never tired at the moment, to be honest. And so, what is your job? I mean, what do you, you you describe yourself as an SME ecosystem influencer? My goodness me, I'm exhausted after saying that, and you've got to say it a hundred times a day. <laughs> uh, when it comes to um, entrepreneurship development, all of the things that you do do on a regular basis, what is yeah. the 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 intervention that you bring to help small businesses? Yeah, fantastic. So um, I think the we call it the ecosystem, and it's probably a cliche in itself, the word. But in South Africa specifically, really, our, our ecosystem is small. I mean, depending on who you ask and how they measure it, we could say, and whether they're bankable or not bankable entrepreneurs, we could say anything between 1.8 to 2.6 million um, small businesses, some of them micro, some of them medium, some of them larger. But really, it, it started quite a number of years ago where um, I was still in corporate um, I, I really, in the beginning, learned just um, how to get grit. I worked with ShopRite right in the beginning of my corporate career, and and I still remember to this day. I wonder if if White Everson will remember this. I was a store manager in the small store in Plettenberg Bay at the time, and I remember him walking in one. It must have been a December or an April. I, I'm not sure, but it was a it was a holiday time. He walked in. We were really busy, and I was young and absolutely inexperienced and trying to strut my stuff store manager of, of the of the store in Plettenberg Bay and I remember him walking in and it was busy and he said to me hey Catherine or he didn't even know my name at the time he said um you know the <laughs> your shelves aren't cool enough and I said Mr. Son you know what you can help me pack them and really that's where it started and I really learned grit <laughs> I really learned grit real grit from um from, from from my first beginnings in in business and and, and shoprite taught me that and then um, from there I was um, I moved on to Chevron at the time and we had 
I think it was a split on the correction was a thousand two hundred or three thousand three hundred service stations, and many of those at the time were going onto a franchise model. And at that stage, Bruce, I just thought, gee, whiskers, this is this is something different. I love it. I absolutely love the energy that these entrepreneurs have. They fight the, they want to get on with it, and 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 they're creating jobs. At the time, I didn't have the narrative for it, but but today I understand what I, what I thought. And then from there, um, really, my, my career just, I always tried to find the corporate jobs where I could work with entrepreneurs. And then, you know, like many of us do, when you take that big plunge, and that was about 10 years ago, um, where I then started, uh, or just um, 10 years ago, where I started Synchrom Consulting. And it really was only to enable these entrepreneurship programs. I remember going home that night to my husband and saying, listen, I may not earn money for a while, but trust me. <laughs> and um, and that's where it started. And we and we just, and I, and I just started the business from there, was blessed enough uh, on one of the projects to meet Kit on sale at the time from Life Capital. I'm sure you know Kit. Oh, yeah. And um and I just and we clicked we clicked and um and I can still remember now I can say it my client didn't know it at the time but there was a client who um who wanted a program from me on the synchrom side to develop tech entrepreneurs and at the time I just literally did not have the program or the wherewithal or the knowledge to to do this so I called up Kiev and I said hey how about I buy fifty percent of grindstone I have no money to do so but we'll make a plan. And he giggled and he said, "Let's make let's make a plan." And and from there, it, it's just been a fantastic opportunity to work with some of the best startups in in the country, really, and and in Africa. And um, then then got involved with um, with with Knight Capital, uh, procured half of, of Grindstone and Yet and um, and Eben and Andrea at the time. We we really just built out the Grindstone business. And now we've we've graduated over I think 160, 170 companies in Grindstone, proper alumni companies. Um, they, in my mind, they're all rock stars. And then from there, we started to fund kids very well versed oh, with with I mean, Evan, it's, it's, um, and the I mean, rest what, of the partners. The sense I get, the sense I get from you, Catherine, is that you you live what your clients live each and every single day. You fake it until you make it. You call in favors. You make a plan you stick things together with bubble gum and sticky tape just like escom does each and every single day although they're not supposed to do that um but in in the startup world you <laughs> truly are grinding as grindstone suggests each and every single day simply to survive and 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 to make it happen what gave you the confidence yeah. in 2014 that this was an air, 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 an area that's the word i was looking for an area in which you could make money mm. If it's not me, then who? If it's not now, then when? You know, and it's—I know it's okay. a cliche, but it's—it's it's just. Uh, I just—I just thought um, um, if if we could all, we have a slogan in Synchrom that says, uh, "Changing changing Africa one on entrepreneur at a time." And at the time, it was quite naive, but it but the confidence really was um, seeing this couple of successful entrepreneurs at the time in my in my corporate career and being so enthused by that and seeing how how they've just changed lives, you know, at a micro level, at a meter level. And now as we work with the companies that are a little bit bigger in Grindstone, I mean, if, if we look at Grindstone, if I can give you an idea, um, it's just over 2 billion rand 
that we've now been able to help the Grindstone alumni companies with in third-party capital um, since they've graduated from the program. And of course, I'm not saying the program's the only reason of their success, but that was one of the enablers. So it's about that. And when you see that type of money starting to be capitalized in these businesses, and you see the job creation opportunities, and you truly see how they are starting to make money, you know, it's awesome. It's awesome to see that. And, and it's fulfilling. And both, as you say, by God's grace, and sometimes we will make our own money too, you know, but it really is fulfilling to see how they're adding back to the country and the continent. We're talking this evening to Catherine Young, the founder of Think Room Consulting, helping entrepreneurs across Africa get started, build their businesses, grow those enterprises, and ultimately create jobs and pay taxes. More with Catherine Young in a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Our shapeshifter, Catherine Young, founder of Think Room Consulting. So how do you have a business that consults to small and medium enterprises? Typically, these are not businesses with great budgets. These are not businesses that have got massive budgets to entertain outside influence. How does that process work, Catherine? Yeah, I really love this question, actually, Bruce. So so really, and you spot on the business model of, how um, small businesses get support. I mean, it really is difficult for the small businesses. They don't have the money, depending on the life stage of where they're at, especially when they're in the first stage or two, when you know, they've just ideated, they now have the idea together and they're trying to get um, to the next level of just building this product or the service or the solution. That's difficult. They don't have the money. And, and, um, and, and this is the exact gap in, in the country and actually uh, Africa and, and, and a bit broader. But if I speak South Africa and Africa specifically, this gap, it's, it's before, it's before the VCs can come. It's before we can come in with, 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 with series A, nice capital money as an example. But you have this gap where they need somebody to believe in them enough to fund them, um, but, but they don't. So what we, what we do, you have a number of corporates, um, if I just speak South Africa specifically, who truly are serious about um, empowering the entrepreneurs, understanding that triple B, double E is not a tick box exercise, but understanding that it actually can help their supply chains in a way that they need to to go. So what we do is we work with a lot of corporates. Um, We work with a lot of corporates who don't necessarily only have ESD, like enterprise supply development programs, but they have programs that they want to develop entrepreneurs. And then typically the the corporate is, is usually our client. It's a B2B relationship. And the startups or the SMEs, depending on the, if they're tech or non-tech, they are the beneficiaries. And then as you go up the value chain, it gets a little bit easier. Once they have that product market fit, they can show that the product will work or the service will work. Then it's still not easy, but the money starts unlocking a little bit because we prepare them. So really, we work a lot with corporate partners, with development agencies um, and the like to help us to build programs to support these startups and SMEs. Um, it's wonderful. So basically, the bills get paid by people who want to do good into an ecosystem um, where, of course, everyone understands that SMEs are absolutely critical. I mean, De Beers was once an SME, believe it or not. So was Anglo-American. Yes. Uh, and it's kind of impossible yes. to think of a world where those were startups. They were, I mean, they, they were funded with all, you know, in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways, but everybody needed help to get started. You know, Ernest Oppenheimer didn't do it, you know, just writing, taking out the family checkbook. 
look, the Oppenheimers weren't super wealthy at that particular point. He would have got support from mining families in those days, for example. It's kind of taking that idea and putting it into a, a commercial framework. That's exactly right. You know, we have a saying in the, in you know, every industry has its little cliches and its little sayings. And we have a saying um, in this particular industry, um, Will Green, who works with us from time to time, he, he coined this phrase, it takes an ecosystem to build a startup. And I absolutely love that. And And it's true. You know, it's almost like there's a number of us as players, both accelerators, ecosystem developers, funds in the market. And our startup ecosystem as SMEs and startups are not that big in the country. And, you know, there's such a heavy responsibility on us to make sure that if the startup comes comes our way in Grindstone, as an example, and they're not quite yet ready for the next level of funding, when you pass the baton over to the next company, entity, fund that will support that startup, that you've done well by that startup, that you that you pass that baton on with the responsibility in mind that you have to help that startup. On the other side of the coin, I just have to mention this, there are also startups, right, that 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 would go some way and then stop, and then you have ways to work with that. But, but the point is, as an ecosystem, we all start somewhere small. It's like that saying, it reminds me of the saying um, of, of the, the, the first founders of Twitter. He said, the best overnight success ever takes about nine years, right? And, and that's it. And we all have that responsibility yeah. to drive these startups forward. You've, you've helped 170 companies sort of go through your process and graduate, if you like. It, it must be hugely fulfilling to do that. But we need a thousand Catherine Youngs helping 170 startups. And that, I think that is one of the big problems. And, I, I, you know, I don't think there's any shortage of talent, desire, will and um, lots of people who want an opportunity to succeed who simply, you know, can't get through the door or don't, you know, don't tick the boxes that are needed. We need a lot more than the scratching the surface that we're doing at the moment in terms of the sector. Yeah, absolutely. We launched, a, actually, believe it or not, we launched a product actually just last week, um, which is a learner management system. And, and truthfully, it's it's another one of those products where it's about building startups. So it's an LMS, it's a learner management uh, system where short videos it, it's like I think we've got 160 or 170 videos on there of experts that can just talk about anything from strategy to marketing to sales to how do you find funding um, and we're just distributing this to to all the startups who want to learn and it's all the way through from when they're just starting all the way through to those who are mature but we have to build this in a sustainable way that um, we can massify the impact you're absolutely right so from so what we've done and and this is why I love the partnership that I'm in with 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 knife specifically so we're, if I can almost say like in our business, and we have this with loads of other ecosystem players that we work with, in our business, Thinkubate, which is our LMS, maybe touches on the earlier stage. Thinkroom then takes them to the next level. We then hand them over to Grindstone. We then hand them on to Knife. And we work them through the whole value chain because you, you pass that pattern. You, you don't teach the startup the same thing over and over. And by that, through that value chain, I would say to you, we've maybe, and we've been at it for 10 years. We've maybe touched, um, I did the count the other day, probably light touch all the way to heavy touch, 25,000 
startups, that's still not enough. So my appeal really is for, as an ecosystem, we have to just get really clever around how we are much more um, succinct with our interventions and succinct with, 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 with how we get these startups, both customers and money. You know, I always say you don't only need funding for the sake of funding. A customer is also a way of funding. So imagine if we can get Imagine if we can get corporate South Africa to truly just say, let's incorporate X percentage of these smaller businesses into our business from a supply chain point of view. Imagine what that can do. So this is on all of us. You know, it's not just the ecosystem players that need to fix this. We, we can fix this together. And it's actually not that difficult if we eat this elephant a bite at a time. It's a massively exciting space. It's a massively necessary space. I Again, government today in the budget says, you know, it's putting X billion into job creation. And I wish, and I think it was Clem Sunter who said it years ago, can we stop trying to create jobs and let's just help businesses start? Because then the jobs follow. 100%. 100%. The, the statistics are very clear. You know, if you, uh, we've just finished our programs for the year. We did the tallies. Uh, just a week ago, and the average jobs that you create, if you truly engage in developing a startup, you you look at anything between three and five percent. Granted, depending on how you count that job, whether it's a temporary job or a permanent job, we can get into those details in a different discussion. But create the start, help the startups, and they create the jobs. I so agree with you. Catherine Young, thank you very much for joining us this evening. The founder at Think Room Consulting and so much more. She's had a remarkably busy career and she's not planning to slow it down anytime soon. Catherine Young.